This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Movie-free horror GMing. The Battle of Castle Itter. Anthropodermic Bibliopegy. And Elvis in Margaritaville. I'm trapped in a diabolical dilemma. The spirits are restless, as on Halloween night, and... Hold on, ma'am. Here in Sunset City, every night's Halloween. What's the hocus-pocus? Neighbors are vanishing, jewels are missing, and even the mayor's tangled in a web of witchcraft. Meow! Fear not, for the magical kitties of the Cat Eyes Detective Agency can handle any Halloween whodunit. But how, Detective? In Sunset City, secrets are as common as candy corn in October and run deeper than a witch's cauldron. Enter Magical Kitty Save the Day, the bewitching role-playing game for all ages. Its newest hometown source book, Kitty Noir, uncovers all the secrets lurking beneath the perfect facade of Sunset City. Kitty Noir? The spellbinding blend of classic film noir, spine-tingling mysteries, and eerie science fiction? That's right, and here's an extra Halloween treat. A full-size poster map of Sunset City, perfect for planning your spooktacular adventures. Get it now from Atlas Games! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us not just into the gaming hut, but into a all-request episode, one of our first in a while, because while I know that all of you in your heart were requesting more science fiction cinema essentials, it doesn't technically count as a request if it's only in your heart. But anyway, Derek Yates, beloved Patreon backer, is here to kick us off, and Derek would prefer to kick us off with the sound of unknown figures scratching at the universe's outside rim, Derek's players would rather kick us off and watch our torsos explode because Derek is an avid literary horror fan, but he says, I do not care for horror movies, especially overly gory ones. My players, for the most part, love horror movies, the nastier, the better. Is there a way to blend these two aesthetics? Can I rely on my knowledge of literary horror to carry my scenes and descriptions, or is my unfamiliarity with the gorier aspect of cinema doing me a disservice in running my games? Robin, what do you think? Right. So first of all, I'll say the obvious thing, which is that GM's get to cut out things from their games that they find genuinely disturbing, just as players do. But I think mm-hmm. that's not the question here. It's not that you, Derek, are necessarily appalled by this. You just don't care for it. And so the question is how to how to bring in the element of basically every modern horror movie. For that matter, modern horror TV shows are mm-hmm. astoundingly gory compared to <laughs> what was considered shocking, like when I was coming up as a wee sprat beginning to watch horror movies in the 80s. And so... The question is, how much do you want Derek to be exposed to this imagery as opposed to letting the uh, players have it in their own minds? Because if you don't want to think it up, but don't mind hearing it, you could, for example, delegate the task of describing exactly uh, the horrific scene that the players have stumbled upon to your players who love these gory movies in round robin fashion. And they can seize that bit of narrative control to uh, describe 
all of the uh, dismemberment and uh, tentacle wounds uh, that they fancy. Yeah, and also, literary horror can get gory. Stephen King is generally a pretty dab hand with the gore. There are much gorier authors than King now. Likewise, in the 80s, that, well, that was something shocking, and we didn't get to buy it in open sources. But now, you can just read all manner of grotesque carnography, uh, if you wish. So, I would say that look at how, you know, your literary models describe, you know, something god-awful. And Lovecraft, for example, describes lots of god-awful things, and he's doing it in his sort of Hawthornian prose. But you can say, as Lovecraft says, there was a certain unnatural quality to the rocks. You can say there's a certain unnatural quality to the blood spatter. You don't have to describe the unnatural quality. You can just say it. And then the players, as you said, Robin, will have it in their minds. And some degree of it is, you know, where is your GMing sweet spot? Is it, you know, elusive, like your literary uh, models? Do you feel the need to sort of lay out all of the details about the room and therefore you feel like you can only have monsters that kill in a, you know, desiccate way, not a blood spattery way? That's a different question. So figure out what the scene is doing, basically, in your mind, figure out what needs to happen for that to happen, and then you know, leave it as much to your player's imagination as you can, because it's probably not tactically going to matter where the foot is found in the room. You can just say the foot's not on the body. There's a lot of weird shadows in the corners. Maybe one of them's a foot. And the players will sort of, you know, glom onto that imagery. And because they, of course, have been battened on the Blumhouse smorgasbord, they'll be imagining all manner of, you know, distended tendons and purpley flesh and whatever else. You don't necessarily have to say any of that. I do think that gore is an important tool to have in your horror GMing arsenal, just because sometimes there's nothing that widens players' eyes like a good bit of that shouldn't be done to a person. But I don't think that it's essential. And I think you can absolutely run, you know, terrifying horror with just, you know, dread or, you know, the cosmic sublime or any of the other sort of aesthetics of horror without ever getting to viscera. Yeah, briefly, if you actually want to shield yourself from that imagery, and you're like running a Slack channel or Discord along with your live game. Yeah, you can just say, you know, in this channel, Jim Bob, write up what the zombie does to uh, to your character, and everybody else can look at it, and, and you can skip it. The next question is, what are people asking for when they are asking for gore and horror? One of the things that's appealing about it to people who like that stuff is just watching the makeup effects mm -hmm. you know avid readers of fangoria are into the creativity of what you can do to latex prosthetics to make them look awful or i guess these days there's uh, uh you know cgi blood spatter as well but so there may be an aesthetic appreciation of that that you're just not going to get at the table in any effect because you know you didn't invite tom savini over to mm -hmm. chop his fake arm off and then you probably don't have a quart of red caro syrup lying around anywhere. And more importantly, the equipment to clean up the red caro syrup. <laughs> yeah, right. But the other thing about gory movies is that the horror turns on sudden shocking acts of violence. And so your players may also be wanting the excitement of a zombie chase or, you know, a, a Frankenstein creature running amok, ripping limbs off. And it's not necessarily the description of the blood and makeup effects that they're looking for, but they're looking for that more visceral, jolty, 
action that is about a physical threat to their characters in addition to or even instead of the more psychological dread that literary horror, I think at least in the way that Derek means it, tends to lean toward. So it might be just a matter of having more horror action scenes and again, leaving the very specific details of that to the imagination. Yeah, another aesthetic in horror film is gory, but is gore as the sort of self-topper. It's not so much the sudden shock of gore, which is still present, obviously, but it's in especially, you know, what uh, they call torture porn films. There is a sort of a sense of, well, that's awful. How can it get worse? Oh, my gosh, it just got worse. And that's sort of a long, drawn-out, you know, sort of a layer cake of brutality. And, again, that works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. You know, I have an upper limit of it as well. I think everyone eventually does at some point, but that sort of, you know, building up of visceral horror and the sense of, you know, being psychologically imprisoned with a thing you can't look away from is another strong emotional payload that that kind of torture porn scene delivers. And again, that is going to require the GM, I think to double down, describe something awful the players are all like, oh, that's pretty awful, and then figure out a way for it to get even worse. And this may be where Derek, for example, will say, well, this is a problem for another GM because I'm not doing that, and that's a completely legitimate thing, but that same effect happens in horror novels, and it's sort of the haunted house effect. You're in a haunted house, something bad happens, you're, you know, uh uh-oh, how how bad is it going to get? And of course, it keeps getting worse in terms of the manifestations or the presence of the eerie or the actual physical danger from flying, you know, paintings or whatever. So you're building that same sort of rhythm in other sorts of horror, but you can build it into gore. And again, that's what some horror film consumers value or at least are pleased to see in a sort of cathartic I'm glad that's not happening to me, that that's happening to some, you know, attractive Canadian somewhere is the sort of sensibility they take to it and away from it. Now, if you're so uninterested in movies with gore in them that you don't know the last 30 years of horror, (laughs) uh, horror film at any rate, you can cheat your way to familiarizing yourself with the tropes without actually watching, spending hours watching things you don't care for. You, for example, can watch the Green Band trailer, not the Red Band trailer, but the Green Band trailer for a lot of contemporary horror films. And because those are cut to play to a PG-13 audience, they won't have the the bits that the Fangoria fans love, but will give you a sense of what the current ideas and cliches are. Although, if you listen to our Horror Film Essentials series, uh, now available as an audiobook on Bandcamp, you'll know that things actually haven't really changed all that much in terms of what the basic themes and motifs of horror are. It's just the uh, a visceral impact that they're delivered in can be uh, heavier these days. I'm just imagining the Green Band trailer for Martyrs has got to be like four seconds long. Yes. <laughs> well, and as you just discussed, there is sort of an extreme horror or torture porn sort of horror that is just about people doing horrible things to each other. And I think even the players who love gory stuff and will watch those movies as sort of an endurance test don't necessarily want a GM to do that to them at the table, right? They're yeah, not no one wants to, to have the, the person strapped down to the table in a role-playing game, I feel like. Pitting right. the pendulum, the RPG, not a thing. Right, yeah. So that sort of extremity of how much you can possibly put up with, I think it doesn't, even if you're looking for it, I don't think works super well 
at the role-playing table and you shouldn't uh, beat yourself up for not delivering that, uh, even if you do like it, which in Derek's case, he doesn't. Yeah. So I, I feel like there's lots more on running a horror of all kinds, including gore in GURPS Horror 4th Edition, written by me uh, while we're plugging things, Robin. But I, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, tools in your bag. You don't have to use all of them. And you should use gore judiciously if you're going to use it, regardless of whether you love it or hate it, because it's got a flavor and a power all its own. And I think, Robin, that and, sounded and that like... that flavor is, is corn syrup. <laughs> yes, right. Delicious, delicious corn syrup. And on uh, on that summarizing note, Robin, are we able to leave the Haunted Laboratory, or do you have any final thoughts? Uh, let's get to the Haunted Laboratory. Ah! Pelgrane Press celebrates its favorite season. The spooky season. With a terrifying offer insidiously designed to suck you into a world of role-playing horror. Go to the Pelgrane Press online store. With trembling hands, type in the promo code SCARY23. And get 20% off on Trail of Cthulhu products. 20% off on Yellow King role-playing game products. 20% off on Esoterrorist products. And you guessed it. 20% off on Fear Itself products. A deal this eldritch. This reality shattering. This disorienting. This pulse pounding. Can only intrude into our safe little existence while ghosts are ghosting and black cats are prowling. Specifically, until All Souls Day, November 1st. So that's promo code SCARY23. At the Pelgrane Press web store. For 20% off all its most chilling gumshoe horror games. Until November 1st. The next hut that uh, waits for us uh, on the horizon in a strategic location is built to military specifications and has camouflage. It is the command hut. And indomitable Patreon backer Richard Schwerdfeger wants to hear about the Battle of Castle Itter, which he describes as a battle in the waning days of World War II after Hitler's suicide, where U.S. Army soldiers, German Wehrmacht, and French POWs teamed up to fight off a Nazi SS division. You heard it. Wehrmacht versus SS. This is indeed one of the strangest and most cameo-filled battles in military history. And Ken, you're here to tell us all about it. Yep. The Battle of Castle Itter. I reveal no surprises when I say that it takes place in Castle Itter. Castle Itter is near the town of Itter in the Austrian Tyrol, about 15 miles from the Bavarian frontier. The castle itself is only built in 1878. It's sort of a, a modern folly. It got confiscated from its owner by the SS after Austria became part of Germany. In 1943, the SS turned it into a prison for high-value French prisoners, such as former Prime Minister Edouard Deladier and Charles de Gaulle's older sister, people like that that they'd captured and were holding as increasingly as bargaining chips uh, should the war go wrong. And in this case, the war had begun to go very, very wrong because it is uh, 1945 when our story begins. A castle itter is run as part of the Dachau camp complex. So it's under the command of the Dachau camp commandant, Eduard Weiter. On the 2nd of May, 1945, after Hitler's suicide on April 30th, 
Viter is shot and killed under mysterious circumstances. And the two rumors are he committed suicide, just like his Fuhrer, or he and another SS guard were having an argument about whether or not they should just melt into the woods and Viter was shot. So the guy who's running Castle Itter is getting nervous already. A Croatian trustee, they had a number of East European POWs that acted as servants at the prison. A Croatian trustee left the prison to do an errand for the commandant of the prison. Instead, he uh, runs over Hill and Dale looking for the United States Army. And now, is that an errand? Wink, wink. Is he, is he been asked to do this or is he changing his mission? He's been asked to take a message to the army by somebody and the somebody might have been a POW or it might have been one of the lower ranking SS guards who can see the writing on the wall. They know if they're captured by the Russians, they're all going to be killed in a basement or maybe on the stairs down to the basement. It'll be so exciting. So if they surrender to the Americans, they'll at least go to a prison camp and only maybe be killed. So that's in the mind of all of these SS guys at this point. But as far as we know, the errand is sort of a go out and, you know, get more bread type errand. But either way, he takes the opportunity to run off and find the U.S. Army. He finds a U.S. Army detachment, but they're refused permission to go to Castle Inter because it's in another detachment's area of operations. But by the next day, the Croatian hasn't come back, and the SS prison authorities are like, what if he went to the Americans? Now we're in trouble. And so they just panicked and ran away from the prison. And the result was that the French POWs took it over. They armed themselves with the guns from the armory and the 14 remaining SS guards changed sides. They said, you know, tell everyone how good we were helping you out. Yeah. We've always liked baguettes. We've loved Brie. Yes. I love, I love the little, a little hat. We'll shoot with you, not at you. And so the French send a check cook to find the Americans because now it's getting very serious because obviously the SS you know, prison authorities are going to be running off. They're going to run into the SS and have to say what happened. Why are you not in your prison? Will be the first question, I feel. So the Czech cook finds an Austrian resistance unit in the hills above a little town called Virgil. And the Austrian resistance has been very recently joined by a Wehrmacht unit, which was occupying the little town. And the SS orders have come through that everyone in the little town who like, you know, Looks like their resistance is to be killed. And Major Joseph Gangel says, but if I help the Austrian resistance, this will look very good for me when I'm captured. So he also goes over to the Allied side. And Gangel sends out his own scouts to find a U.S. detachment. And he finds Lieutenant John Lee of the 12th Armor, who is commanding a platoon of Sherman tanks. And John Lee doesn't care any of your nonsense about unit divisions, and he starts driving out to help. But the trouble is that there are bad bridges along the way, and an SS detachment attempts to ambush them. It's setting up a roadblock. So between having to leave his tanks behind to guard the bridges that are kind of falling in, he's only able to bring one tank, 14 soldiers, and 10 of those Wehrmacht guys with him to the castle as the relief force. So that's not a gigantic relief force. And although the POWs are very happy to see the Americans, they are, you know, why did you not <laughs> bring, you more? bring more Americans? Right. And Lee says, well, you know, 14 Americans in a tank is more than you need, Frenchie. But he takes over the defense of the castle, puts the tank in front of the gates, shuts the gates and gets ready in the hills. As predicted, the 17th Panzer Grenadier Division of the SS, about 150 of them, we don't know exactly, move in. 
under the commander of that division to surround the castle. They begin probing attacks, you know, firing through the, the, the windows. We discover that a castle built in 1878 is not the greatest thing in the world to hold back machine gun fire. So that's an exciting revelation. But on the morning of May 5, the SS attacks, they move in. That They've got an 88-millimeter anti-aircraft gun that has been repurposed to be an anti-tank gun, and they shoot it at the walls. They blow a hole in the upper story of the prison with the first shot. The second shot, sadly, hits the Basada Jenny. The Sherman tank, as Sherman tanks do, catches fire. The uh, Americans bail out, and so although the tank had been doing a great job clearing the driveway with his machine guns it is now out of action so things are looking it's it's sad because it was going to retire to florida things are it it, it really had one more week left in service and then it was going to retire fortunately the phone line to the castle has not been cut so lieutenant lee has been calling american headquarters and saying where are you people trying to describe the situation and sure enough it doesn't have enough different people and divisions in it come on nope so he eventually gets a hold of, or they get a hold of him, depending. The stories differ as to whether he called them or they call the castle and say, I wonder if the phone line's still up. But anyway, the 36th Infantry Division, 146th Infantry Regiment, which is the division that's supposed to be in this area, finally shows up in this area, and they begin to move to the defense of the castle to relieve the siege. Things are looking bad. Lee is about to pull all of his men back into the keep. And the French Olympic tennis star, Jean the Bounding Basque Borotra, who is in the prison, volunteers to run and find the American relief column and guide them to the castle. And <laughs> Lee says, why not? This story is already ridiculous enough. He's a high value prisoner because he's an athlete. So send the athlete. And he's famous. So he, uh, he vaults the wall, runs up a hill, crosses the creek and finds the uh, 146th, guides them through the town. He is recognized, by the way, when he reaches the 146th by the embedded journalist, a fellow named Rene Levesque, Robin. Uh, Rene Levesque. <laughs> You don't pronounce the S. So uh, we'll put a pin in that for a sec, but that's right. a giant cameo as far as Canadians are that's concerned. That's a huge cameo. Anyway, he's recognized by uh, Rene Levesque. He gets an American uniform put on him. He guides them through the town. When they arrive, the SS hear the cry, you know, Americanish Panzer and flee. A hundred of them are captured by the 146th, which implies that the force attacking the castle must have been at least 150 and could have been, you know, even more. But that's the end of the Battle of Castle Itter. Major Joseph Gangle is the only fatality of the siege. He is shot by a sniper, apparently while he is trying to move one of the French politicians out of the way of a sniper. He is shot in proper action movie style. Classic face turn. And now a, a street in Vorgel is named after him, which I think is, shows, you know, a, a good fellow feeling. But Castle Itter, a battle about basically nothing for no reason except general sort of be nice to POWs is over and successful. And once more, the Americans have saved the day. John Lee gets the Distinguished Service Medal, the next thing below the Medal of Honor, and he gets promoted to captain. And uh, everyone lives happily ever after, except obviously uh, Major Gangle does not live happily ever after. And Jean Barotra is later tried for being a collaborator. So he also does not live happily ever after, I guess. But it's 
it's still a happy ending as long as you end it on, you know, the afternoon of May 5th. When I was reading the description, uh, as previously alluded to, my eyes popped out when I saw René Levesque. That can't possibly be the René Levesque, but it is. So he's one of the titanic figures of Canadian history, or his ghost doesn't come to haunt me. I'll say also Quebec history in the mm. 70s and 80s that he was became, after his career as a journalist, the head of the Parti Québécois, the separatist party, and led the referendum that came very, very close to having Quebec declare independence. And he was a, a big figure on the Canadian national stage. So I can't even think of a an equivalent level cameo for, you know, who, who's the most famous American governor of the 70s or 80s who didn't become president. Like, I mean, you know, maybe George Wallace of yeah. Alabama, right? Yeah, it'd be like, you know, if, if somebody of that stature just had a cameo in this story, that's uh, that's uh, pretty crazy. So the first question is, how do you make this into a game? Well, there is a board game from 2019 called Castle Itter, The Strangest Battle of World War II. It's designed by David Thompson, and it's published by uh, Dan Berson Games. And it's a solo game, so that you are playing the defending forces, which of course is a side that you would want to play. So if you're a board game fan, uh, check that out. And as far as uh, tabletop is concerned, I think that as a a one-shot, you can justify having all manner of player character type people just happen to be high value prisoners in the camp. Or, you know, you can, uh, if it's a one shot, I guess you can have them assign them d- different historical players, right? Somebody could be the the bounding Basque. Yeah. You know, there's a possibility for a sort of a, you know, almost a drama system game because you do have all of these different factions. You've got the SS garrison of the castle that changes sides. One of the members of that garrison then rechanges sides and runs out to join the Waffen SS, which may have been why they moved their attack up because he runs out and says, they don't have any ammunition in this castle. And he's, a, you know, a blaggard and awful human being. But that's a sort of a, a dramatic moment if you're going for something. I think that this would be a really great thing to sort of dress up. This is like a Star Trek episode where the Klingons and the Federation work together to fight off the Cardassians or something. And I feel like you could dress this in Star Trek clothes and everyone sort of knows what's going on. And it would be a, a fun basis for a, a, a Star Trek sort of adventure or, you know, any other sort of science fictiony game where you have bad guys and worse guys and you want to sort of make your we're all human together message at least about you and the bad guys not necessarily about the worst guys we're awful right and in a wider sense the dying days of a war when it's lost but not everybody has stopped fighting yet and chaos reigns and people are trying to polish their resumes for the new regime or just find out where the gold is that could be a whole mini campaign unto itself of which defending a castle slash high value POW camp would just be one installment. Yeah. It's uh, in the way that Kelly's heroes is a sort of a Western and a war movie where you have your sort of roving gunman, basically doing adventures. This could absolutely be one, you know, stellar moment in your sort of we're, you know, roaming Americans and we have one tank and we're driving around looting gold and fighting Nazis and, you know, uncovering ghosts or whatever we're doing. Right. And it then frees you from the command structure because everything right. is yeah. momentarily falling apart. And as we saw, you know, Lieutenant John Lee cared nothing for command structure when he ran off to save the castle. So it's even sort of historical to do that. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, get in our tank and head across this river uh, and look at a commercial on the way over the river.
The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive Through. Keep this podcast horrific but cozily alive by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Sean Daniels. Craig Maloney. John Rogers. Joshua Hillerup. And Adam Balderstone. The fine leather bindings, the smell of quality bond paper, the comfortable chair near a perfectly tuned light source, let us settle into the book hut. Although that smell, it's not paper, is it? It's kind of like, I don't know, ham. Oh, dear, Robin, we're not just in a book hut. We're in an anthropodermic book hut. The books are bound in human skin because beloved Patreon backer John Kingdon has exercised that most powerful of Patreon backer powers, the tell me more request to make you, Robin, report on the book Dark Archives by Megan Rosenblum, which I believe you mentioned in a previous segment and is all about the people who hunt down books bound in human skin, which, as you said at the time, sounds a lot like a player character group in a uh, kind of a creepy occult game. But right. in real life, it's surely not creepy or occult. Yes. I think you're actually calling back to a conversation we had in your kitchen. Oh, well. <laughs> but I talked about this in uh, Ken and Robin Consume Media. Okay. And uh, given the topic, uh, we're going to talk for a little while longer before getting into anything really unnerving, and I think we'll still continue to elide over certain details. But Megan Rosenblum goes into those details in her book, which I, first of all, have to say, is a quite responsible, scholarly approach uh, to this very <laughs> uncomfortable topic. She has, she has nothing to do with anything that we may say about possible curses, possessions, demons, any of that. Right. She, and she does know what the Necronomicon is. She does? Yes. Oh, good. So, uh, she is part of a small group of librarians and uh, scientists who make up the Anthropodermic Book Project, which is all about scientifically documenting uh, various uh, books held by libraries, and it turns out also collectors, and determining whether rumors around them that they might, in fact, be bound in leather made from uh, human skin are, in fact, that, or if it is a legend or, or nonsense, and spoiler, often legend or nonsense. Mm. So, and so there are a bunch of fun ruiners is what it sounds like. Well, it depends on, I guess, whether people want to find out that their book is bound this way or not. And basically, if you're an institution, you probably are very, very happy to learn that it, it, that your book is not bound in mm -hmm. human flesh. And if you're a book collector, you're actually strangely excited. She thought it would be the other way around yeah. when she began going around to places. Because she's never met either librarians or book collectors in odd positions. Well, she's met a lot of them now. <laughs> and librarians, of course, face uh, a lot of pressure and inconvenience. Harvard 
once uh, put up a blog post that was uh, somewhat flip about one of the books in their collection, and people got very upset about that. It became a big political uh, problem. And in fact, many, particularly European institutions, won't allow this testing at all. And they, they can say, well, we don't want you know, an invasive test that damages this book, but the amount of sample needed today is, you know, an, an indistinct little dot to go away and have PCR testing. So mm-hmm. really they don't want the institutional fallout of this. Right. Whereas book collectors are very happy, it turns out, to discover that rumors around their book are true because that greatly increases the value of the book. Yeah. Often not that they would wish to part with it because they find it makes an even more exciting story. And so uh, the other thing that you might assume going into this is is if you have a horror game sort of or a horror genre background, you say, well, these books are all must be connected to the occult. They must be blasphemous tomes. And, and with one exception that I'll mention in a minute, in fact, it's not a occultism that brought these books mostly into existence when they really exist, but 19th century medical science that almost all of them are collected by doctors who access the samples and sometimes tan uh, the books themselves. And it is part of the 19th century process of going from the body is taboo to we have absolute scientific objectivity over the body. It is an object. It means nothing to us. We have clinical detachment and we have so much clinical detachment that we can create a book cover out of a person. Well, you you can't be more clinically detached than that, I guess. Although, exactly, yeah. And well, actually you can yeah. because it was also at the time common practice to pose with cadavers and have parties where all sorts of uh, shenanigans were got up to uh, in order to, you know, allow the students to have enough distance from revulsion from the body in order to to go about their their work and do what they had to do. And of course that's at least aspirationally, <laughs> not something that uh, is supposed to be permitted at all today. Yes, well, the, the, the end is justified. The means are dubious. I'm glad that's only ever happened in bookbinding. Right. The one exception, the one thing that has any sort of occult connection is there's a special edition of uh, Poe's The Gold Bug, which somebody in the late 19th century beautifully fashioned and in fact did test as a uh, human positive. Uh, but other than that, they're mostly the work of doctors. There's one other very strange exception, and that's the case of a uh, book collector and very eccentric rich guy named uh, Charles Hartman, who was active in the 20s and 30s. And he became a big proponent of the poetry of a woman named Phyllis Wheatley, who in the revolutionary era was the first black woman to write poetry and was a controversial figure at the time because a lot of people, you know, wanted to even question whether a black person could possibly write at all. And he wanted to promote her work. He spent a lot of philanthropic effort into doing that and became her foremost collector. And as part of that, had a number of books bound with human skin, which seems, I have to say, like a, a weird tribute. Yeah, they weren't bound in Phyllis Wheatley's skin. I think we should no, not make that all. clear, right? They were bound in just other people's skin. It's unknown where those specimens came from. It is known, however, that they were bound by a reputable bookbinder in London in the 1930s. And at that point, they are hinting around in the invoicing what's going on. But that suggests that if you're running a Bookhounds of London campaign, there's still somebody 
you know, willing to, to do that. Mm-hmm. A specialist, which is obviously someone worthy of being investigated, interrogated, and uh, checked out in a right. Bookends of London game. And then uh, you don't have to necessarily have it be Charles Hartman and his, I suppose, relatively anodyne obsession with uh, Phyllis Wheatley. It can be someone who's obsessed and I, I think this is, you know, almost teaching grandma to suck eggs at this level. Someone who's obsessed with the poet Justin Jeffrey gets books bound in human skin or something else. So you, the, the obsession with a specific figure and the difference of the skin is, a uh, I guess the, the ingredients of this story, right? That you have someone who's, you know, got some, you know, third party involved, maybe not related immediately, but they've also got this anthropodermia binding obsession and so therefore the two obsessions work in in parallel as opposed to being i really want to dig up edgar Allan poe and bind the gold bug in his skin that's a different vibe right and there are cases where the the donor uh, as it were is known mm-hmm. one thing that rosenblum learns pretty early on is that any book where there's a story with a racial aspect to it where the donor is or victim i guess is is thought to be black or indigenous that's never tests positive that that's always a nonsense story well, I, I suppose that's refreshing it, it is refreshing yeah. on the relative scale of yeah. whether things can be yeah. refreshing in, in this topic it, it's still it's sort of you know not particularly great for the family of the white wino who was flens to bind you know someone else's book but still another big source of nonsense rumor is there were uh, also many calumnies were flung during the french revolution uh, accusations were made about revolutionaries engaged in this practice and that's all propaganda there's been nothing found from that era of french history probably the weirdest case of someone who is a known person was the highwayman george walton also known as james allen he committed a a spree of crimes in the early 18th century and while he was dying in prison he asked his jailers as a, a gesture of repentance if they would save enough of his skin to bind a couple of copies of his confession and send one of them to one of the people he tried to kill, a person named John Fenno, who survived because Walton shot at him, but the bullet hit his belt buckle. Mm. And there's a fun version of this story and the real version of the story. The fun version is that the book just showed up one day and <laughs> that Fenno was nonplussed to receive it. But that's not actually true that Fenno was in touch with him near the end of his life as part of his atonement process. So this could still be part of the Conjuring universe, though, right? Yes. You're sending the guy you tried to kill a book bound in your skin. I feel like elementary occult precautions should be you donate that book to the library's book sale or something real fast. Right. And it is, in fact, now in a library collection, but it turns out that you uh, it's permanently off inspection. Mm. You can't uh, because too many requests. That's another Simpler reason why institutions don't and want haunted to, by highwayman George Walton. Yeah, exactly. This sounds like uh, since we're talking a lot about the 19th century, about subject matter for the Yellow King. In fact, in 1887 in Paris, there was slightly before the time, uh, the 1895 date, that is sort of the default. Uh, there was a big scandal in Paris where it turned out that police officers and forensic experts were saving the skin of people who'd gone to the guillotine and making it mostly into card holders, but sometimes into books. But that shows that, you know, there was widespread revulsion when that came out and it caused the police chief at the time to have to resign. Mm. So it's not like this was ever a thing that people thought was okay, but something that often elites were doing 
covertly or behind the scenes in order to show their power over other people that they were just like the elites yes allowed to break this rule there is a prominent game master character from the yellow king camille flammarion the scientist and uh, science fiction writer again a little earlier on he had a young admirer and he praised the quality of her skin and she took that compliment to heart and uh, shortly thereafter she uh, began to die of tuberculosis and in this case it was again it was her idea she requested on her deathbed that her doctors save some skin to be turned into the binding of Flammarion's next book. And in fact, a copy of this book from 1877, Les Terres de Ciel, which is speculative nonfiction about space and extraterrestrial life, he went ahead and, and uh, posthumously uh, took her up on that. So the obvious plot thing here to do is, is if you're running a contemporary game to have one or more members of the investigative party be members of the Anthropodermic Book Project and uh, going around testing various books, and that could bring in the different products that we've talked about. Or what if you find out that the DNA tells you that it's it's not a known creature at all? It's not calf. It's not pig. It's certainly not human. It's something else entirely. And or maybe you're like the sort of the B team. You know, Megan Rosenblum and her people are the people who go out and test you know books of poetry and things. But if there is something, the reason that she says, I've never found anything occult is, you know, why? Because the player characters took all those jobs for the Anthropodermic Book Project's, you know, reclusive academic sponsor, uh, a professor who has connections, maybe going back to Miskatonic University or maybe uh, going back to whatever other the dark secret is in your game. You know, Ingolstadt University where Frankenstein practiced or uh the Scholomance where Dracula went to school, whatever. And they are sending you out to check out the properly occult, properly possessed, properly demony anthropodermic books. And it can be a sort of an, an X-File situation where you're just, how is this book? We know there's a book involved somehow, and we know that it's causing this ruckus, and we have to find the book. We have to date the book. We have to figure out who wrote the book. We have to solve a book mystery. And then every now and again, it's just, oh, the guy who collects it also you know, is a Satanist and he's summoned up a bunch of demons and that's the real problem. We just have to take the book off your shelves. And the book isn't actually part of the mystery. It's just how we got into this fun adventure, right? And so, yeah, it's a it, it's a campaign that basically writes itself, as I believe one of us said in my kitchen, if that if your recollection is correct. And um, I feel like, you know, you've already touched on the Bookhounds of London connection, which is legitimately historical as are all truly great game connections. Do you have any sort of off the wall ideas for how you can slide the anthropodermic book project or just anthropodermic books into a game? I'm going to say that due to it's having written itself, it has written itself. And uh, uh, instead I'm just going to, again, emphasize that it's a quite good, readable, very informative book. So check out dark archives by Megan Rosenblum. And it's time for us to head to the next segment. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... Uh! 
Fuck! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, estimable Patreon backer Michael Fox says that uh, Jimmy Buffett revealed during the recording of an episode of CMT's Crossroads that Margaritaville was actually supposed to be recorded by Elvis Presley, but Presley died the same year the song was released. And so uh, the real question is, can what happens in the alternate uh, timeline where Elvis does record that song? And is it a better timeline that you're going to create or a dark timeline that you had to put back on its proper Jimmy Buffett recorded Margaritaville track? Well, let's just lay out what does happen first, as we often do. Jimmy Buffett comes up with the song. Apparently he had a bad day. He stepped on a bottle cap. He lost his flip-flop. He cut his hand on his beer. And he was complaining to his producer, Norbert Putnam. He says, I just had the worst day. All this happened. And his producer says, well, that sounds like a country song or words to that effect. And Buffett says, it does. And then he writes, you know, Wasting Away in Margaritaville and records it in November of 1976 at a recording studio in Nashville. And it's produced by, as I say, his producer, Norbert Putnam. So. In November of 1976, Elvis is making an effort to get himself back into shape. He is touring relentlessly. People are hating his tours. They're saying they're too short, that his voice is gone, that he's terrible. And so he's listening to this criticism and trying his best. And so by December 30th of 1976, he's back in the white jumpsuit for the first time. He can fit back into it. He does a pretty good show in Atlanta that people are pretty uh, psyched about. So he's sort of in a momentary groove. He's coming back up out of this cycle of drug dependency and overeating and terrible life choices that, you know, it's a cycle. So obviously there's ups and there's downs. So at the, in the sort of this moment of optimism, he books the recording studio creative workshop, terrible name in Nashville for a session from January 20th through the 25th of five days to finish up his album Moody Blue, which his producer is basically trying to assemble from individual live tracks and bits that he's found. RCA got so desperate, they just sent a gigantic studio out to Graceland so that he could record without leaving his house. That works about as well as you'd think. So he's booked the studio. He drives down to Nashville, staying in a kind of crummy motel, apparently. And there are many, many explanations for this as with all things that Elvis gets in a fight with his girlfriend, Ginger Alden, 
puts him in a terrible mood. He's already mad at the bass player in the TCB band, Duke Bardwell. He feels like Bardwell is not doing what Elvis wants. That is the reason the records are sounding muddy. And also maybe he's just sick because it's, you know, cold and flu season, right? It's January of 77. And so for whatever reason, there is a urban legend that he walked into the studio, saw, first of all, that the studio was kind of rinky-dink. And second of all, that there was a pizza box just laying around. And so that showed a slovenly attitude and he just got mad and left. But the more plausible version is he just never went to the studio at all. And that's what most of the eyewitnesses on the scene say happened is he they kept waiting for him to show up. They recorded backing tracks. He never showed up. So the, in real history, Elvis did not actually come anywhere close to recording Margaritaville. No. Somebody else on his team selected that as a possible track for him to record. Right. Well, what happened in real history is that we're, we're moving out even into a different nub, but Jimmy Buffett said this on a, on CMT crossroads and Jimmy Buffett is on record as saying, don't believe everything Jimmy Buffett says because <laughs> his job is to tell entertaining stories. Right. He's not a historian. Which is something you would say if you bribed a time traveler with margaritas to extensively change the timeline for you on multiple occasions. You could be referring to past events that have been erased, but let's not put too fine a point on it. Could be. What would have happened if that happened is they would have sent the song to Elvis's manager and producer. The manager and producer is under instructions from Colonel Tom Parker to only accept songs from artists that already have a relationship with Colonel Tom Parker so that he can double dip the song rights. Right. And that's notorious. All Nashville... Songwriters John Prine and other people have stories about almost selling a song to Elvis until they realized they would have to give up the publishing rights, at which point they turned around and left. And, and left. But in, in this case, you know, they wouldn't even have the choice necessarily because the degree of control around Elvis was so tight that they were just dismissing songs. Elvis was complaining he was getting terrible songs As he to would record. Be if people were walking away from Tom Parker's uh, demands. And that's why he was doing so many covers in this later period of his life, because it was songs he actually liked. So the rumor is that there's a, a piano version of Unchained Melody that's amazing that he recorded for Moody Blue. It didn't make it on. So there's lots of what ifs about Moody Blue already. And many of them are what if he'd had better songs? So this is the environment into which the song comes. So in a world where Elvis is so mad at Duke Bardwell that he says, get out of here. I don't want to record with you. Get me that guy who's played bass on 120 of my tracks that I liked that. What's his name? Norbert Putnam. Bring him in. Norbert Putnam shows up. He's got the demo of Margaritaville on him and he plays it in the studio for Elvis. And Elvis says, that song is great. Why do I never get great songs? Let me do that song. And they do that song. And it becomes a fait accompli. And Elvis insists it goes on the album, as, which Elvis entirely had the ability to do. That's how Suspicious Minds made it onto the album in 1970 or 71, whenever right. that dropped. He, he could overrule Colonel Tom, but people had to get past Colonel Tom in order for him to do that. Right. And, and Elvis also, in fairness, had to be in a mood to sort of, you know, rise up out of his stupor and do it. The theory is that in January of 77 is kind of the last shot that he ever had of rising out of that stupor. But if he'd gotten that track and recorded it, some might say that what happens is Moody Blue goes on to be a bigger hit than most of his later period country albums. Margaritaville climbs the country charts. 
probably reaches number one with Elvis. Elvis is jazzed and gets maybe another couple of years of life before his fundamental situation once more drags him under. Jimmy Buffett has to wait and record Margaritaville on Volcano. And so Jimmy Buffett's career takes another three years to launch and doesn't have the the moment of kick even when it does come out because everyone's like, oh, that's an Elvis song. He's like, no, I wrote, ah, never mind. So in this timeline, are there no parrot heads? In this timeline, there are fewer parrot heads. Jimmy Buffett was already a cult performer. People were already coming to see him. He was a, a regional sensation, but it's the album Changing Latitudes, Changing Attitudes featuring Margaritaville in 77 that turns him into a gigantic national touring talent and creates the the legend of Jimmy Buffett in the way that we know it now. So one can argue that in that other timeline, middle class and upper amiable white guys have fewer opportunities to meet other middle class and upper amiable white guys at giant festivals. And so you could say either the degree of, of business deals goes down because there are fewer of them, or it goes up because no one is drunk and high when they're making them as much. So it's it, it's sort of the 80s economically, there's a ripple, but I think it's a wash. But the real problem is that, you know, Jimmy Buffett does not become a legendary touring star, the equivalent in many ways of Elvis on the back of Margaritaville. It just, he becomes a perfectly enjoyable guy that you're, you know, one of your friends maybe likes, but there's not a a, a gigantic cult around in the way that there is now. There's still parrot heads, I'm sure, but they are like, you know, juggalos. They're not like deadheads. Right. right. And uh, parrot heads listening will want me to say that it's not just guys our age in colorful shirts, uh, Cam, but also gals our age are also uh, lots of parrot heads. Yes, yes. The parrot heads encompass a wide demographic, but certainly in the 1970s, most of the deals that affect the future economy are made by upper middle class white guys, not by the rest of the demo. Right. So we return to uh, the prior question of, is this a timeline that you are going to affect a good timeline? Or uh, did you have to battle one of your time enemies in order to reverse the time with many fewer parrot heads? Or was it a situation where, as you say, perhaps wrung out from trying to drink anyone associated with the Memphis mafia under the table. <laughs> yes. Here's your, here you're really meeting your match. Not with time. Enemies. Yeah. This is, this is, you know, the freaking thriller in Manila of my time career. If you want to say it honestly. So perhaps I'm wrung out. Perhaps I've had a bad day. Perhaps I've lost a flip flop, cut my hand on a beer, stepped on a bottle cap. Who can say what's happened to me? Perhaps a plausible young rogue arrives in a Hawaiian shirt bearing a pitcher of margaritas and says, you look like you've had a time, son. What's going on? And I say, well, if I weren't in Nashville, we could sit on the beach and talk about this. He says, well, let's drive down to the beach. So we go down to maybe Key West, maybe Gulf Shores. Who can say where we might have gone? We have a few drinks. And sure enough, it turns out, Robin, that when there's one time traveler and several pitchers of margaritas, time can change. That's all I can say about that. Well, I guess that any role-playing scenario against the background of, uh, of Parrot Heads or the Memphis Mafia is going to be a, a fun one in which many constitution checks will have to be made in order to <laughs> remain competent to deal with whatever enemy is uh, trying to destroy the joy and relaxation that the Parrot Heads uh, represent. Uh, but uh, we'll have to leave that as a matter uh, for the imagination of uh, GMs out there as we uh, 
we're, we're just too tired. We're, we're in our lounge chairs already, and uh, perhaps we've had a margarita already. And so. I would say that the lost Elvis Margaritaville Master would make a great Unknown Army's magic item. There you go. It would have a heck of a charge. Yes. Plus, it's a banger. I yeah. can just say that. And uh, would provide a, a peace and love to the Unknown Army's universe that is not accustomed that to it. That it does not have. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, on that note, uh, so to speak, let us head on out of this podcast and uh, wait for another one to roll around a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astvagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make sure this podcast never loses its shaker of salt by joining such parrot-friendly backers as... Ben Brigoff. Chris Euning. Ross Ireland. Stephen Hammond. And Todd W. Olson. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design, Nope. Still not us. On Axe, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.Camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>